Welcome to Just Go Grind, a show all about building and investing in companies, featuring interviews with startup founders, investors, and operators, sharing the best insights into the world of entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, and in this episode, we have Alex Iskold, co-founder and managing partner of 2048 Ventures. Alex is also a four-time founder, a software engineer, and investor in over 110 companies. He writes one of the top startup blogs called Startup Hacks, and he's also a co-founder of the 1K Project, a volunteer effort focused on pandemic relief. Prior to founding 2048 Ventures, he also spent five years as managing director of the Techstars New York City program. And in this episode, we talk all things investing, and it's filled with insights from Alex's journey over the last number of years in the tech world. As always, the show notes are justgogrind.com slash podcast. And you can support the show by leaving a rating and review over in Apple Podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Various Search, a boutique legal recruiting firm that uses a bespoke approach to fill legal department roles from general counsel to paralegal. They have a particular focus on startups and growing tech companies. This focus allows them to provide individualized in-depth attention to both their clients and their searches. They focus solely on placing in-house candidates, which allows them to give their clients a bespoke experience in filling their legal needs. Their matchmaking approach ensures that clients are paired with candidates who not only have great credentials, but who are also a good cultural fit for a growing company. You can learn more about Various Search at VariousSearch.com. That's V-A-R-I-A Search.com. Again, VariousSearch.com. Without further ado, here is Alex Iskold, co-founder and managing partner of 2048 Ventures. Alex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to come on here and a lot to discuss around investing, raising a fund and, and, and more. But I'm curious with you, what convinced you to get into the world of venture capital? You were a startup founder multiple times. How'd you get into venture? I think... Um, I am like many people is an accidental VC. And so the, <laughs> the backstory is I had a pretty spectacular failure with my second startup and it was a pretty low point for me. And uh, I got a call from uh, David Cohen and Brad Felt, who were founders of Techstars. And uh, they basically asked if I would come and run uh, the Techstars New York program. And uh, at the time, I think I've done one or two angel investments before knew nothing about it. And, uh, you know, my wife made it super clear that I'm not to start another company. And so this was basically <laughs> the only choice. I took the job and I think it was probably one of the absolute best decisions I've ever made. I definitely want to dive into the Techstars experience, but just taking a step back from that, with these companies you have started previously, and obviously you mentioned the difficulty with the second one or the most recent one before Techstars, what were those conversations like after that in terms of what was next? And he mentioned your wife didn't really want you to start another company. What was the discussions like? Yeah. Well, I'm a four-time founder, and I can tell you that the first two startups that I started were fairly spontaneous, which is unintelligent, but it's true. <laughs> I mean, the first startup I started when I was 22 years old, and uh, I was obsessed with a branch of science called complexity science. And the the short of it is, it helps you think about the world in terms of networks. And since I was a software engineer, I decided to write software that would help other people look at their code, uh, understand it as if it was a network and help them fix bugs. So I worked on that startup for three years and got super lucky and got acquired by IBM. So I was 25 at the time. It was, you know, a, a pretty incredible outcome for me. 
And, uh, you know, my second company came about, um, you know, uh, in, in a bit of a spontaneous manner, but it ultimately focused on, uh, it was a social network for entertainment and specifically focused on TV. And uh, it was a very fun company. We did a lot of cool things. We were backed by Union Square Ventures and, you know, a whole bunch of other interesting people. Uh, but, you know, it was ultimately very difficult to win the battle for second screen against Twitter. And so after raising $25 million in venture, you know, we had a hard failure. And that was, that was incredibly painful, you know. And I would just say that as a founder, the most deliberate thing that I've done is starting 2040 Adventures. And, you know, I, I, I tell founders that they should be really deliberate about starting their startups. But the truth is, my first two startups weren't super deliberate. <laughs> going through that experience and I, i've talked to people before who've started companies and failed at companies as well what gets you through to do the next thing after a startup failure because a lot of people are going to be in this game starting companies and inevitably many of these companies are going to fail doesn't mean they failed uh, but how do you get to that next point after you've gone, gone through that I mean, I think, I think it's a little complicated, but you know, in my case, not only I failed, but I failed after six years. So I kind of took very long time to fail and that's really painful. You know, six years is a big chunk of our life. You know, when I failed, I was in a bad shape. I mean, that's the truth. You know, it hurt, it hurt a lot. I, uh, I was, I was, I was, I was furious at myself, but life presented me with an amazing opportunity and which basically lifted me out of it. And that's the truth. I got lifted by uh, an amazing environment in Techstars and, and just these incredible startups around me. When, you know, when we think about founders who fail, I think you know, the most important thing is to self-reflect and to understand kind of like what went wrong. But I do think that entrepreneurship is really in, your, in, in, in many people's blood and, and it's genetic. And so I think people just can't resist. They'll go back. I think the key thing <laughs> is just to learn from your failure. Going from that, then you had obviously a ton of experience as an operator, starting companies, you sold a company all before starting at Techstars as managing director in, in New York. How did that experience affect how you evaluated companies? I know someone uh, on Twitter had mentioned uh, really looking at complexity theory, something you mentioned earlier in this interview. How did that play into how you looked at companies and your role at Techstars? Yeah, I think a few things. So I just published a blog post and did a pretty long Twitter thread on getting into venture. And just to address the first point, I think anyone who's just getting into venture, it's very difficult to be good right away. In fact, I think it's impossible. It really takes a while and it takes a velocity of investments to level up. And so... Dexter's provided an amazing environment for me to rapidly invest. And so you learn through that. But in terms of superpowers that I had and I think developed uh, much more, I would say two things. One is I'm deeply technical and, you know, my background is computer science and software engineering. And so I always looked at everything through the product lens and then, you know, picked up the business bits. And I think that product lens is just incredibly helpful because I think one of my superpowers is to be able to imagine the future. And yeah. um, in addition to this empathizing and emphasizing with early stage founders uh, is something that I could do because I went through the founder journey and knew how hard it was. And then in addition to this, I spent, you know, as you mentioned, like 15 years obsessing over complexity science and uh, just really 
reading and learning about how the world is interconnected and what the frameworks and patterns are. And so when you think about what I now bring to the earliest stage of investing is a framework-based thematic investments where I am highly nuanced around the kinds of things I look for. And they're based on patterns. And these patterns allow me to look for things that I think are going to become big companies, their platforms, APIs, networks. And so that lens of how the world works and combined with my product lens, I think really helps me be, uh, you know, a good VC. Yeah, that's a lot of experience. And people have different experiences who do get into ventures. Some are operators in different ways, some are not. And everyone has their kind of own expertise that they bring to that as well. So with that, so when, you, when you're when you at Techstars, obviously you get to see a ton of companies for that. What would you say to other founders who are thinking about going through an accelerator versus maybe raising an angel round and going VC right away? Like, How do you think through that in terms of what founders should do around accelerators? Because obviously you were at one for five years. How should they think about that? I think like with everything, they need to be deliberate and really understand. I think a lot of founders rush into accelerators just to get, you know, like 25 to 100 and change K. And yeah. the accelerators are different. VCs are different. Angels are different. Founders need to be discerning. I mean, a lot of times they jump in because they're desperate and that's not really a good decision. There's good accelerators and bad ones. Obviously, I think YC, Techstars, 500 Startups, Indiebio uh, could really change the trajectory of a company. I also think that there's some you know, accelerators that just take equity and don't really add any value. What I would say is understand why you want to get into an accelerator and what you're going to get out of it. I encourage founders to, you know, check out the post on my blog uh, dedicated to it and, you know, just be smart, ask questions, be deliberate. From that experience, then you obviously with, with, with many, many years there looking at, I'm sure, a ton of startups going through that program with Techstars. Why did you decide to start 2048? Yeah, and like you said, I've been at Techstars for five years, and I've invested in over 100 companies uh, very broadly. A lot of them are technical, but just amazing founders across many categories. And, you know, five years is a long time in our career. I felt like, you know, I've, I've learned a lot and I've given a lot to Techstars, and I wanted I started thinking like, what is next for me? And I, I had a lot of choices. I could have joined the later stage firm and I could have gone a job at a large company that would pay really well. And then, you know, when I thought about my, you know, one of the most amazing things that human can do on the planet is to discover their purpose and then be able to fulfill it. And I genuinely thought long and hard about it. And I thought that, you know what, my purpose and my superpower is not to just start one company or two companies, but it's really to help start many companies and being a pre-seed investor is the best way to do it. And so, you know, that was kind of the origin story of 2048 Ventures. And then of course, I thought long and hard about what doesn't exist in the world, what do we need to build? And from there, we realized that we wanna, you know, we wanna create a very special firm. Like we always wanna stay at a pre-seed even as we scale capital under management, we're never going to be managing, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars because that's impossible to deploy into pre-seed stage. Yeah. And we want to be the absolute first check uh, lead investor that's geographically agnostic, that's focused on tech and data. 
And so, you know, it, it was, it, this was probably the most deliberate thing that I've started to date and, you know, um, and, and, you know, I've given it a lot of thought and I figured like, this is really what I should be doing with my life. When you figured that out through, you know, thinking about what you actually wanted and you decided you want to start this firm, I know you've, you've written a number of different blog posts um, and over, the, over the years, which, which is great. I've taken a look at a few of them. One of them in, in it, you're mentioning around the fund and the different truths around that. Your, your fund size is your strategy. You mentioned ownership matters. How are you thinking about that when you launched Fund One in 2019 for, for 2048? The before we went to market to raise capital, I spent about six months building our financial model only because I've never done it before. And I was curious. And it's really interesting because, you know, I come from an engineering background and everything, you know, I don't have an MBA and everything that I've learned, um, you know, about finance and investing has been like practical learning. Yeah. But I'm obsessed with like building spreadsheets, really tinkering with stuff. And so, you know, when I built the financial model, I realized a few things. Um, you know, I realized that uh, it's incredibly difficult to make money in venture uh, and truthfully, really, really incredibly difficult. And so yeah. the only way to do it is to come up with a system and be consistent. And so when we thought about how to structure the firm, we basically said, look, we need to be uh, in pre-seed. You cannot be concentrated. It just won't work. We had a specific lens on follow-ons. We had a specific lens on the check size. And then we had a specific lens on what kind of companies we're going to invest in. And so when you kind of put it all together, I feel like we've built a widget that's sort of an extension of what I learned at Techstars. Uh, and I think that that is the right widget for pre-seed. And like you said, I've written extensively about, uh, you know, what we've learned. It's not exactly our complete playbook, but a lot of it has effectively been open source through my blog posts. You said that being concentrated at pre-seed, you didn't think would work. Why Why you said that? So like when you think about, um, you know, the venture math, when you're a pre-seed investor, you typically have small fund size. And if you, uh, let's say sort of in an extreme example, you can only make one investment. The fact is that outcomes in venture are driven by power law. And so your probability of hitting that amazing outcome is exceptionally low. And so when you think about, um, you know, portfolio construction that exists in traditional VC and why it's concentrated, it really isn't for necessarily financial reasons. I mean, the main financial driver is the ownership, but the other driver is the capacity of the, of the venture capital partner. And so the whole notion of the follow-on, you know, mileage really varies whether it does or does not make sense. But when you do need to deploy a lot of capital, you sort of forced into the follow on. And when you have limited bandwidth, you're really forced into being a concentrated portfolio. So when you build a spreadsheet with specific math, uh, my spreadsheet says that I should be doing, you know, I, the, the $27 million fund that we have, I should be deploying in 45 companies writing three to 600K checks. And so that's that's basically the math that, that we came up with. And when you say concentrate, just to make sure, are you saying by industry or are you saying by number of investments? Oh, I'm sorry, by number of investments. Yeah, absolutely okay. not by industry. I mean, there is huge advantage in being specialized, especially these day and age. We are, uh, we, we specialized in types of business models like infrastructure and API marketplaces and networks. So we're, we're across industries, but there's huge advantage in being a specialist in venture. Uh, there's also 
sometimes disadvantaged depending on where you are in the cycle of that specific market. That makes sense. And I, I definitely write about that with what you had said and other people had said the same, especially at the earliest stages. There's no way you're going to have just a few investments, especially a pre-seed. Uh, it's just not going to work out in terms of that. And with this as well then, so this is where the space you're playing in, obviously, but taking a step back to the fund, you mentioned $27 million fund and you had done the numbers going through the spreadsheets for six months to figure out what this was going to be. How did that raise end up going for you? How was that process? You know, I, 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 I know a lot of uh, managers, first time managers are going to hate me saying that, but <laughs> we've raised the fund in like three months, most of it. Uh, reason being is we just had very specific strategy and we were very, very prepared. Uh, you know, a lot of people just pop into the market and announce that they're raising a fund. And I think that's not a good idea because frankly, nobody really cares. There's yeah. people raising funds. Um, we've spent, you know, months and months and months in prep on the model, the deck, FAQs, really thinking through who the LPs should be in our fund. And then starting with a base of LPs and then kind of like spiraling the network and just being very deliberate. And that, that strategy luckily paid off. I want to double click on that because I, I looked at your your site and seen the LPs and they're phenomenal. I mean, you have some tremendous LPs and investors in your fund. How did you look at that from who you're going to approach first? And you had a, a big network, I imagine from Techstars, but that's a different potential network than what you're raising LPs in terms of that. Like, how did you look at that? Like as strategically for other fund managers out there and how you approach it? Obviously your position is kind of unique with what you did, but I'm curious as to how you approached it. Yeah, it's, you know, we started with, the Techstars network, and I was lucky to know a lot of great founders and 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 a lot of great VCs. And so our opening act was basically, I mean, we envisioned 2048 Ventures as uh, a firm that's going to back the next generation of amazing technology and data companies. And we wanted our LPs to be the founders of the existing iconic technology companies. It was a very simple construct. And so we that was the story that we told. And we we said, look, there's underinvested founders that are technical, product driven at a pre-seed stage across different geographies. This was pre-COVID. So yeah, you know, like the idea that we could do distributed pre-seed was very audacious because a very non-trivial piece is like, how do you source being a small firm in New York, like how do you access deal flow across dozens and dozens of cities in North America? And so we had a playbook and we knew what, you know, how we would do it. And we basically presented this to, uh, you know, like early LPs and that really resonated. And so we got a first few early commits and, you know, we got pretty lucky and, you know, a bunch of um, brand name firms gave us early commits and then it basically started snowballing from there. We kept working the same network, kept telling the same story. But now that we've got a bunch of LPs already committed, it was easier because people saw what kind of caliber of people is leaning into this fund. And so we just, we, you know, we, we, kept, we kept recursing on the same playbook. And and from that, from doing the numbers, you mentioned that you had figured out really what you thought you needed to have for a, a fund in this in this world of pre-seed, 27 million, was that what your target was? I mean, did you figure out that's exactly what we wanted? Was it more or less? I'm curious on how that played out. We actually oversubscribed by about 
hundred uh, percent. Our target initially was fifteen. I mean, look, when you go out first time, and this was again, like you know, this was like three years ago, and the market wasn't so hot. Uh, you know, like right now, it just seems like a lot easier to raise capital. But we've we've constructed a model um, based on smaller number of investments, and then we knew that we wanted to have flexibility of you know, doing a little bit more investments. And so we saw the opportunity to raise more capital and we took it. I think 27 is absolutely perfect for our first fund size. Our fund two is going to be about 60 million, but we're not able to, we're not able to just, you know, as I said earlier, we're not able to deploy hundreds of millions of dollars into pre-seed. It's just impossible. And yeah. so we're contemplated as a three-year vehicle. We're very disciplined. And so I expect that our fund size is going to peak at around, you know, 75 to 100 million. And, you know, we're actively growing the team and adding people because it's a different widget. Like it's hard, <laughs> it's hard to deploy into pre-seed and it's hard to be good at it. Yeah. And one of the things you, you mentioned earlier uh, and you've written about as well uh, around ownership. How do you think about that for for your fund specifically for twenty forty eight in terms of your ownership? Do you have targets around that, and what you? How do you think more broadly about ownership strategy? We think that ownership is incredibly important. You know, we we have a range of checks, but we are very ownership sensitive, and we want to get in early, and we want to be rewarded for our high conviction, and we feel that early check uh, deserves a discount and deserves to. You know, we do incredible amount of diligence work for the pre-seed stage. So this is also worth noting just because we're doing pre-seed, we're not fast check writers. Fastest we would take is two weeks. Most most deals take three weeks and we do incredible amount of diligence and work. We're, we do not invest quickly. If somebody calls me and says round is closing tomorrow, I wish them the best of luck. So <laughs> we like to really dive deep and understand as, and as a result, like, you know, we develop high conviction way before anyone else. And then, you know, we're we're investing with really high conviction and, and uh, we, you know, we, we definitely target uh, specific equity ranges. And then we have specific strategy around how we construct a broader portfolio. With that diligence process, and you said doing a lot more, you're not going to jump in around the last second or anything around that. How did you decide to do that? Was it always something you had in mind that you, I'm just curious for other fund managers out there and, you know, getting pulled one way or another, how did you decide on, on that in terms of the amount you would do early? And obviously there's only so much time in a day in terms of how much you can do in a company and how many companies you'll see. How do you think about that? We, since day one, are complete infrastructure maniacs. We, we productize <laughs> we processes for everything. And the reason for this is because we think of ourselves as athletes, you know, you need training, you need systems, you can't just win. This is a very hard business and you need to have exceptional discipline. So I personally think it's undisciplined to just write checks without understanding or because some, you know, brand name firm is investing. That's not why LPs give us money. LPs give us money to do our job and our job starts with exceptional sourcing. It continues to exceptional diligence it then continues to exceptional work with the portfolio companies. And we have to be exceptional at all of it, or else we shouldn't be managing people's capital. It's not, it's not like a light exercise to write somebody a check. So we yeah. develop institutional caliber process that we pretty much follow to a T where we 
you know, take each company through different stages. But the absolute key piece of what we do is doing a deep dive on the market and really, you know, talking to customers, understanding competitive landscape, understanding potential outcomes, doing founder references. So there's a lot, but the reason we're able to do it quickly, relatively quickly, is because we have a lot of processes in place. Yeah, and I think that's something that we're looking at at Vitalize Venture Group as we as we move forward with a second fund eventually uh, this year potentially, and other things with uh, Angel Group and everything, putting systems in place from the beginning, from the get go, to obviously be able to do more of these things. And one of the things I'm curious about because you you mentioned this kind of playbook for sourcing that you had, were using or had shown off to LPs when you were raising a few years ago, and it's a different environment now in 2021, but. I'd love to hear if you anything you can share around how you think about sourcing deals and deal flow, and especially looking at the you know being geography agnostic and investing all across the United States and other places as well. Like, how do you think about the sourcing side of, of deals? Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest challenge in sourcing the pre-seed is you know several fold. One is you just don't know what's out there. You know, Series A sourcing can be solved with an army of analysts and companies are basically, you know, much more discoverable at that stage because yeah. they raised pre-seed and seed at pre-seed stage, you know, it's exceptionally difficult. And so um, that that's, you know, that that's a big challenge. And then the second challenge is just sheer volume. So the way that we've attacked this problem is we want to have predictability and this is really difficult, but let's say we're interested in the geography like Toronto, Boston, what we ask is, look, can we create a widget that allows us to, you know, see significant percent of the deal flow? So how do we measure the total that we expect? And then how do we actually get to, you know, get close to seeing all the deals? And then the playbook that we've built allows us to point our playbook into different cities and kind of like spin them out. So if we need to go to Denver, we can take what we've learned from Toronto. But, you know, it starts with building relationship on the ground and maybe having a venture partner that's in charge of a specific geo and ultimately, um, you know, being very deliberate and focused about measuring and understanding what is sort of like, what are the nuances of this specific ecosystem and, you know, just being persistent in, in measuring and, and improving. From that then, understand that you done that with sourcing, you, you figured out what you wanted from this firm. Now, now it's been a couple of years that you're, you've been into this. What have you learned in these first, you know, couple of years running your own firm that's you know, maybe different from what you were doing at, at Techstars and now you're running the ship? Like what what have you learned from these last two years with being at 2048? I mean, I would say first and foremost, 2048 Ventures is the hardest by far job and the most exhilarating job by far that I've ever had. I mean, before that it was Techstars. This yeah is nothing like Techstars, to be honest. I mean, Techstars prepared me for this, but this is this could not be more different. Techstars was really about attracting the best companies and filtering them based on talent and then just running a program. This is institutional caliber investing. It's incredibly challenging. And really the job is like five jobs in one from <laughs> building a firm, which is basically a startup. Yeah. Um, to, you know, being exceptional at generating deal flow, to being exceptional at executing deals, to being exceptional at handling LPs, raising capital, uh, 
you know, managing a team, empowering people, attracting talent. There's just incredible amount uh, that causes my schedule to be constantly recalendered and shifted. But it's also incredibly rewarding. I mean, I, I don't want to do anything else. I think this is my, I hope this is the last thing I do. And so, um, you know, my learnings are incredibly broad. It's kind of even hard to compress it, but the bottom line learning is true north and mission matters most. Follow what you've set out to do. And then ultimately, after many years in venture, if you don't think you suck at it, you need to start trusting your gut and, you know, just making good decisions based on, you know, the patterns that you're seeing and what you've learned. Um, and then I think, you know, I just continue to be so fired up about institutional pre-seed opportunities. I just think that the biggest alpha in venture today is the early stage if you're willing to do the work and, and you know, can, can filter companies and can get to high conviction and invest. With that, I know we've touched on this a little bit, but I want to just double click on this as well. With, with evaluating these companies at, at these earliest stages, talking with these founders, a lot of times uh, you've mentioned that you, uh, at least on your blog and everything, investing in first-time founders as well. With that and with being so early, what are some of these questions you're actually asking? Any, any, any questions you would ask of these founders or things you think are unique or uh, different or th- think that get to the actual core of what they're doing? Because uh, there's, there's a thing, uh, I don't know if it's Tim Ferriss or someone mentioned around, like you, you ask better questions, get better responses, get better answers, get more out of it. What are some of the questions you're asking these founders in these early stages? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one thing that I'll mention is uh, a peer of mine said this to me on one of the calls is that because pre-seed, uh, you know, doesn't have financial data, it doesn't mean that it doesn't have data at all. And that really stuck in my mind. Like we have a lot of parameters by which we screen early stage companies. And I've written a blog post about it recently called why I love investing in pre-seed. But, you know, you can think of the most important thing isn't really the questions that we ask the founders, but the process itself and asking questions and filtering founders is just one part of it. So, you know, an easy filter is we just don't believe this team can pull it off. We don't believe that they have the right characteristics. Um, We look for two things out of the gate. One is strong founder market fit and even more importantly, vision. I want to invest in founders who can tell me what the future looks like five, seven, 10 years from now. I want them to set the true north and then be flexible on how they're going to get there. But having a really strong vision of what the world looks like if they win, I think that's really key. And so, you know, those two are really the biggest sort of characteristics for us to really start engaging deeply. And then once we engage deeply, we apply our methodology in the process to really understand, okay, well, is there an opportunity? Is there a gap in the market? Does the world need it? Do we believe, you know, the timing is right? Um, And we try to think really hard about all of these things. And ultimately, to get to a yes, there will always be gaps. Like we always make a leap of faith because... At this stage, it's impossible to have everything figured out and perfect. So ultimately, it's a decision based on our experience and, you know, what we believe and, you know, what we think of the founders. You mentioned founder market fit. How do you evaluate that exactly? 
Well, it sort of starts with founders' experience in the space. So when you think about one of the biggest challenges of young people coming out of college, starting companies, especially in the B2B space, is they simply have no industry experience. Like how can, yeah. how can somebody coming out of college launch something, uh, you know, that's important in healthcare? I mean, it's not impossible. It's just really hard unless yeah. they've spent years and years just self-studying. Uh, but it's not just studying and thinking of what should exist. It's actually knowing where the gaps are. So the biggest and probably best companies uh, spring from founders identifying a problem while being in the workplace. And so founder market fit is simply an expression of their depth of understanding of the market. And it starts with a personal experience and then it extends into incredible amount of nerding around like what exists, what is the competitive landscape? Why is there an opening? Where is the market going? Um, so that's, you know, that's a really important piece. It's not an absolute showstopper for us, but I think it's like a 95% showstopper if there is no <laughs> market fit. Yeah. Where, where do you see with this early stage investing, what the future looks like in, in terms of this or, or changes you see happening? Obviously a lot's happened in the last year with COVID and from your experience from you know last number of years, but both at Techstars and now at 2048 in the last couple of years, how do you see it evolving? How do you see early stage investing changing? I mean, that's a really broad question. What I would say is we live in unprecedented times of inflation and capital saturation. Uh, this definitely wasn't the case when I was starting my second company. There's just, it's, there's so much easy capital out there and it's both good and bad. The good is, it means that all kinds of founders have a shot at starting companies. The bad is people aren't being rigorous enough in thinking everything through. And it's really easy to raise money sometimes, uh, you know, on very like frothy valuations and you know, people are going to learn hard way because nothing in the world that's great can be free or frictionless. And so both founders and investors are going to learn that, you know, uh, rushing into just, you know, rushing into investments or rushing into startups is not is not a great idea. Now, that said, I think that the, we leave during the most tectonic shifts. And, you know, when you think that any generation can say that, it's actually false. What's driving the most tectonic shifts are um, the levels of sophistication and the levels of tooling that we've developed. So what I mean by this is, you know, we've, we live inside of acceleration of acceleration. Everything moves faster than faster. And that's fueled by um, velocity of information and the tools that we've built to date. So what that means is, you know, we're going to see incredible, incredible things happen in our lifetime or, you know, soon after, including um, completely transformative biogenomics uh, society where, you know, we will, we will see an ability to eradicate and cure diseases. We will see editing people, animals, creating magical foods, all of that stuff is coming and, you know, A16Z is famous for saying bio eating the world. And <laughs> Mark Andreessen also said software is eating the world. And I actually say 
bio is eating the world and software is eating bio. What that actually means is we're able to uh, create incredible bio so much faster because it's now software. So that's kind of one piece that's incredibly exciting that's coming down the pipe. I think everyone is fired up about decentralized finance, blockchain. I think these technologies are here to stay. They're going to hopefully transform and democratize access. I truly hope that's going to happen. Um, we are going to live in the world of uh, surrounded by screens where video is a de facto methodology for communication and it's aggressively eating text. Um, we will be experiencing incredible uplift in all kinds of infrastructure in cities, last mile delivery, all of these things that we've been talking about, like they're, they're coming down the pipe. It looks like quantum computing is coming. That is another incomprehensibly transformative technology when it hits it will change society forever so um all of this to me points to incredible opportunities and specifically opportunities in wealth creation if you can if you can compute these things if you can figure them out and become an early stage investor i think it's going to be incredibly lucrative, faster and more interesting, you know, next couple of decades to live in. With all of these different things happening and the world evolving so fast, I'm curious, what do you consume? I know you mentioned Mark Andreessen and some things they're doing at H16Z. They put out some tremendous content. How does it look for you just in terms of your education on different markets? And obviously you're, you're talking to different founders uh, frequently, but how do you go through that side of it as a VC, uh, the content consumption and how you kind of organize in your ideas as well? I mean, my number one way to consume information is through founders. I take, historically, I've taken incredible amount of meetings per week and I just learn from these meetings and I get ideas. And one of the things that I've become good at is bumping into a founder, thinking about what they're telling me and then realizing that's probably not the right founder and probably not the right idea, but here's how I can rotate what they're saying to fit our thesis and here's what we should start looking for and then be more deliberate about seeking out investments and, you know, reacting when I meet, uh, you know, other founders. So I constantly refine my lens literally through interaction with people. Um, I do not have a ton of time to consume content because I'm just so incredibly busy. My schedule is so tight and I output more than I input other than, you know, talking to founders. But like you said, I'm a massive fan of A16Z podcasts. I think this is just next level quality content that's that's really, uh, you know, that's really unrivaled. And 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 I I sort of I rush to consume it because I think I think it's just both their bio podcast and the main podcasts, uh, you know, like a, a truly truly exceptional. Um, Besides that, I don't really read systematically TechCrunch. I occasionally consume this stuff during lunch, but I, I stay away from the headlines. What I do do is I try to read relevant popular science books. Like that's my thing. I, I you know, I buy way more than I can read. I've read <laughs> a ton of them, a ton. And like, but I just love expanding my horizons and thinking kind of longer term. Um, but that's... That's that's really it. Like I don't I don't really 
follow the news day to day. I am though very active on Twitter, so I get bits and pieces from there, but it's certainly not a systematic way of consumption. Yeah. And then the last thing that I'll mention is like, I do my own work and like I do deep dives on every company that I invest in. So that's obviously nerding and learning. Like if I meet a company that I'm interested in, then I'm just going to dive in and do the work. Yeah. For, for that, when you do find that company you're interested in, what does it look like for you in terms of diving in on that? You mean, what do I do after I become interested? Yeah, from the industry perspective of you learning more about that. And you mentioned, obviously, you're already talking to founders, but when you, you have an investment and you're looking, I'm just curious for other you know, fund, fund managers out there who want to go through this process or curious about how you approach that process of learning about industry and kind of diving deeper on it. It really depends, but I have a database of experts. And so it's most of the time I lean on my network for like filtering bio and genomics investment. Yeah. I think I can, and NAI is still something that I'm ramping up on, but, you know, in regular areas, like that's sort of like B2B SaaS or vertical marketplaces, it's, it's easier. And if it's specialized, it takes longer. Um, I just spent a full month diving into a water space. It was an incredible journey. Uh, I ended up investing in two companies and you know, what I did was like, I started completely from scratch. So I used my network to connect with VCs, companies, um, influencers, founders in the space. And then I was basically like, you know, calling people and saying, Hey, what do you think about this? How does your industry work? What's driving it? What are your needs? And you know, it's, it's a true research. You just, you kind of have to do the work. Yeah. I love hearing that. That's great. And one of the things that you mentioned earlier around, there's really multiple different roles as a fund manager. And one of those that we haven't really discussed yet is what happens after the investment. And so with 2048 Ventures, how much are you doing on the helping founders and what does it look like after investment for them? Yeah. I mean, we are exceptionally hands-on, but unannoying investors. What I, I joke with the founders and I tell <laughs> them that I'm going to be the most helpful and the least annoying person on your cap table. And if you look at our NPS score of 100, you know that this is true. Founders really love working with us. Look, our recipe is very simple. We are, we have no agenda other than founder success. That's like the foundational element of how we engage. And then, you know, we, um, you know, we encourage founders to think about KPIs and metrics they need to achieve to, you know, raise the follow on capital. And then what we do is we meet with founders every couple of weeks and, you know, our minds and you know, are open and we just listen to what they need. We help them with things that range from pricing to sales strategies, to optimizing their funnels, to helping them recruit, to ultimately then helping them raise more capital. And, you know, it's individualized, highly individualized per company. Um, and, you know, we love it. And, you know, we, we are really, really excited to be that trusted partner at the earlier stage. Come Series A, um, you know, we're less visible, um, you know, we're less present just because this is not our superpower. But until Series A, we're, we're, we're very hands-on. Yeah, and one of the things just from the helping founders and even people who don't invest in is you have this blog, startuphacks.vc, and you've mentioned right on there writing a couple blog posts per month, two to six blog posts per month, but you've done it for a number of years. How has that impacted you as a VC, your deal flow, your thinking, uh, and what do you suggest to others who should maybe create that uh, as well as VCs? I mean, I think, you know, like 
a lot of great things in life. This was sort of accidental. The backstory of Startup Hacks was that founders would ask me all these questions. And I noticed that founders keep asking me the same question over and over again. And I, like all the good computer scientists and engineers, I'm lazy. So I, <laughs> so I started writing, uh, you know, writing these as blog posts. So, you know, I am such a massive fan of culture of writing things down. In fact, that's the title of one of my blog posts. I think that there is no better way to respect other people and to organize your thoughts than through writing them down. And, you know, um, I think this applies to your thoughts on the industry, but also on like internals, like we document pretty much everything inside the firm. And we feel like this is, this is such a foundational element, but, you know, in terms of startup hacks, it sort of grew organically. And now, you know, it, it really is sort of like even more than a book size. But what I realized one day is that the blog format um, is not ideal because it's hard to search and hard to find information. So I just created an index, which basically looks like, a, you know, on the landing page, you can see everything that's there and you can also search. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a variety of topics. I think that that's an incredible part of who I am in my presence. Pretty much everybody like reads the blog, you know, comments, replies. It's, it's taken me, you know, I think four or five years to build up to this amount of content. And I am very committed. One of my new year resolutions was to restart and to blog at least <laughs> like, you know, several times um you know several times a month and i've been keeping up um and i just do it for fun you know a lot of it is also selfish you know because there are things that are on your mind and you yeah. want to organize your thoughts so you you know you blog because you it's for you right and then other people benefit as a sort of side effect yeah it's funny i, I just interviewed charlie o'donnell from brooklyn bridge ventures and he's been writing as well for a, a long time he started three months after fred wilson started his blog <laughs> it's just this must be a, is this a new york thing i feel like with people in new york writing on these these blogs more so but then others it seems like it's it's just a funny trend i've seen and so valuable though for having that to your point of being able to write down your thoughts and organize and then also helping others and getting access and deal flow especially in the early stages when people can find this when they're answering you answering their questions essentially, but all these early stage things. And then it's like, well, Alex is someone I want to work with. And that's just a, a huge benefit for that as well. And I'm thinking about that for, for Vitalize Venture Group as well, in terms of our content and how we look at creating things that then allow us to get inbound requests that build our brand, but also help us learn, you know, as you're organizing and synthesizing different ideas uh, around different industries and different topics that you learn about as well. And one of the last things I'm wondering about with all the things we've talked about already, and you mentioned again, the variety of roles that go into a uh, founder of a venture firm. How do you manage your time, Alex? Well, you know, I am one of the most maniacal time managers you've ever <laughs> Great. So a couple of things. First of all, I was absolutely terrible to myself as a founder. And even during Techstars, although I've gotten a lot better, but I wasn't really managing my calendar properly. And, you know, I do have a very famous blog post on self-care where I basically discussed that I was like, you know, borderline alcoholic and I smoked as, you know, as a youth and 
I did a lot of bad things. And what, I, what I've come to realize is that without self-care and without strong calendaring, I just simply cannot do my job. So today I'm the polar opposite. So, you know, it's interesting because I've been able to accomplish a lot more while working a lot less. And I think it's really hard to do, but you can, you can do it by just planning. So my typical routine is I give mornings to myself. So I, I try to meditate, drink my matcha, exercise, and then do productive, like do work that I need to do, which isn't answering emails. I keep my inbox at a zero. So every day before I go to bed, even if I have a few emails left, I just boomerang them into tomorrow. That way I trick my brain to think that I have no work <laughs> before I hit the sack. And then I exercise every single day. I've increased the amount of my exercise from like an hour to, you know, uh, hour and a half, two hours. I try to exercise between meetings. It just helps me clear my head. I go for daily walks. Um, and then, you know, the real secret is I basically have completely locked in calendar. So you cannot get on my calendar whenever I don't want you to be on my calendar. And so uh, there are time spots for everything. There's different types, types of time blocks. And, you know, um, it just takes incredible discipline. The, all of it is just incredibly beneficial. Sometimes you just feel like you're a bit of an, a machine and a robot and you know, that's a little sad because I, I have a creative piece to me and, uh, you know, um, I like to, I like to be creative, but you know, you just put a block called creativity on your calendar and then you go wild, you know, <laughs> you can't, can't deviate. If you deviate, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna struggle. It's funny you mentioned that I, after reading Cal Newport's book, Deep Work, I started blocking off my calendar as well, where every single minute is blocked off. And to your point, like you may be blocking things off for fun or creativity or anything that's not work, but you still have an idea of what it is when you're trying to do all these different things. It's kind of impossible to do if you don't take you know charge of your time. And it becomes more and more difficult. And as you mentioned, you know, in your writing and stuff as well, like as you move on as a fund manager, you just have more and more investments and it gets even trickier uh, as you have more things going on. So it's like you can't can't slack on this and you have to put, as I say, with the analogy, the big rocks in first to get the most important things done first and you schedule things around that as well. Um, and that's just the only way to move forward. Otherwise, you'll, you'll always have more work. There's always more work to do, especially as a venture firm. You could always look at more deals. So Exactly. I mean, I would just say that my system is sort of a mix of Mark Andreessen's system, which he, he, he switched to something that he can afford, which is like have no plans and just work mm. whatever he wants. So my system is a mix of that effectively in the mornings and then maniacal structure starting, you know, literally like afternoon, everything is completely structured for like until five or six o'clock. And I find that that balance is important, but I also realize that the more breaks you take, the more fit you are, the healthier you eat, you can just, you know, it's, it's, it's really the myth of more hours. It's just it's <laughs> absolutely false. It's just false. Cause you, you just get into these like modes where you're trying to do more, but it doesn't matter what you do. And like, you get more exhausted. It's, it's really a vicious cycle. Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. And it, you're never going to like catch up from that. So you have to kind of pay attention to it. I, I feel very fortunate to have been 
exercise sports science major undergrad and, and working with people as a personal trainer early on in my career before I switched into the, the business world in a bit different capacity because it gave me that foundation of understanding exercise, nutrition, sleep, the value of that. And it's not always easy to, to do, but once you understand the value of it and the importance of it, you realize that those things come first and then everything else can come around it. And yeah, to your point, you can't just make more time. And I was listening to even like, it might've been Elon Musk on a, it might've been clubhouse or something else where it was a podcast interview where he's saying he tried to do the, you know, the less sleep for a long time. It just didn't work. So he finally just like, Hey, I just understand I need a minimum. And then I go from there. And once you realize that you're just like, all right, that's just the new normal. Then you just function within those parameters that you have. And one of the last questions, just because I, I wanted to have fun with this. So uh, who is your favorite investment and why is it all true? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 I love Elkan and Vinny. They're great guys. I mean, <laughs> I don't really have favorites. It's, it's it, you know, one of my superpowers is, and, and maybe people would think it's it's stupid, but I, I, you know, I, to the best of my abilities, I treat all my founders, regardless of whether they are, you know, at like hundreds of millions or billion dollar valuation to like complete zeros and failures. I treat, I try really, really hard to treat them equally. And like, I genuinely believe that that's the commitment that I'm making to them. Uh, but Altru is an amazing company and an amazing story. You know, this is the story of a company that went from zero to 60 uh, you know, to 60 million acquisition because they they just generated ridiculous amount of revenue uh, in two years. And it's a story of an incredibly talented engineer and an incredibly talented, probably the best sales-oriented CEO I worked with. And uh, it's also a story that you can have an amazing outcome without raising crazy amounts of money. The company only did tech stars and raised million bucks. And then wow. it's a $60 million acquisition. So while it's not a unicorn, it's a very, very significant outcome for, you know, relatively significant, obviously huge for tech stars and founders, pretty great for, you know, the seed investors. And, uh, but, you know, old through foreshadows a big trend, which is video eating the world. And when you think about what Ali Khan and Vinny invented, which is basically the simple idea that companies should communicate with, you know, potential candidates through people in the company and through video and replace text-based Q&A with videos. It's an incredibly simple idea, but it hit the nerve with literally like many, many Fortune uh, 500 companies. And I think many more industries, uh, you know, are going to be disrupted through video in this way. Yeah, it's gonna be interesting to see how that evolves. I'll have to have a I'll cut on the show then if he wants to uh, to, to talk about it. It'd be an interesting story to share that because I think it's a great point you brought up. It's you can have a really good outcome without having to be a unicorn. I mean, there's a lot of outcomes within that. Earlier on, I've talked to a number of people who've had some smaller out, smaller quotes uh, outcomes like Jude Gamilla sold a company for 45 million. I had him on the podcast. Um, Cole Zucker sold a company again tens of millions and. Uh, Blaine Vest, same thing, tens of millions, but they had a, a pretty significant ownership portion. So from the founder, like you're getting a really good return. Obviously, you have investors who want a larger return to return their funds. And so there's some conflict potentially there, but interesting story. May have to talk to him as well. But Alex, I know we're out of time. Uh, where is, what's the best way for founders and even if other investors want to get in touch with you, how should they do that? Oh, I'm very accessible. So, you know, you guys can tweet at me at Alex Siskold. 
uh, or you can email alex at 2048vc and obviously you can check out startuphacks.vc and 2048.vc. Perfect. This was a lot of fun, Alex. Thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Just Go Grind. If you want to follow along on the socials for all things Just Go Grind and with me as well, you can find Just Go Grind on Instagram and Twitter at Just Go Grind. You can find me on Twitter at JustinGordon212. Find me on Instagram, JustinGordon8. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day.